Amen. All right, so take your Bibles. If you're not there already, go to 1 Peter 3. Uh, 1 Peter 3. Um, <clears throat> let, me, let me begin by reading a very familiar passage to you just to kind of set the course, get, get you in the, um, just the proper thinking and where we need to be as we approach um, a somewhat sensitive topic. And it's a, it's a passage out of Philippians 2. It says this, adopt the same attitude, that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. See, we, it's really important that we understand what it is that Jesus Christ did for us before we can even engage in the conversation for the day, which is what has Jesus Christ called us to be as husbands. If you've come in here this morning and you're unfamiliar with what it is that Jesus did, what Philippians 2 just explained to us is that Jesus came in great humility. He willingly laid aside heaven to come and take on the flesh of humanity, to, to come as one of his created beings in order that, in a selfless act, he might be able to give himself for those he had created and who had rebelled against him. And Jesus came, and he came to pursue. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And, and if you're sitting here, and you're like, okay, listen, I, I feel lost, and I just don't feel like Jesus has actually come to pursue me. Are you here? It means he's pursuing you. That's part of the call of, of God in your life. And in sac great sacrifice, Jesus willingly took your place and died the death that you should have died. And it was enough. His finished work on the cross is finished forever. He, he is done. He has laid aside the work of sacrifice, and now he stands at the right hand of the Father forever making intercession for us. And if you have simply acknowledged with your mouth what your life depicts every day, that you are lost and you're a sinner and you need a Savior, and you've called on him to be your Savior, that then you can live in peace, reconciliation made right with the Father because of the work of the Son. But the one overarching thing that you need to grab onto before we jump into verse 7 of chapter 3 is this. When Jesus did that, you were entirely undeserving. You weren't beautiful in the least you were a sinner who was raging against God in your rebellion, and yet Christ still died for you. The only reason that you're lovely today in God's eyes is because the righteousness of Christ makes you lovely. And it's important that you understand that before we begin a discussion about the, the Christian home and how it relates to husbands. Um, if you've been with us for a while, we've been working through 1 Peter, beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1 really explains that beautiful gospel moment that, that Jesus Christ came to seek and save those who were lost. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he, he kind of explains that. And then he, he says, as a result of being redeemed, as a result of being reconciled, you need to live differently. The world should look at you, and, 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 and you can live differently, because Jesus Christ left you an example, because Jesus Christ is with you. And you need to live differently because the world keeps watching you. And what the world sees should be the gospel in action. But unfortunately, what the world continues to see as they peer at us is a reflection of themselves. 
And so what Peter has done is he's walked through and said, no, this can't be. Even in difficult situations where you are being treated unjustly or unfairly, you need to act differently than the world around you. Even when you find yourselves in a situation where the the human authorities over you are pressing in on you, you still need to act differently. If you're in the home and your husband is not a believer, that you still need to act differently than the world around you. And if you are living in a difficult situation with your wife, you still need to act differently. What does differently look like? Peter tells us. Here we go. Verse 7. Husbands... In the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So what does it look like to live differently in the home as as a husband? Well, he starts by saying the same thing he said to wives, in the same way or likewise. And again, it's pointing back to chapter 2, verse 21, where he begins to describe and explain what Christ went through. As as Jesus Christ began to um, experience unfair treatment, injustice, it was being poured out on him, it says he didn't commit sin, there was no deceit found in his mouth, he didn't insult after he had been insulted, when in the midst of his suffering he didn't threaten, but instead he entrusted himself into the hands of the one just judge. Husbands, the very first thing you must do in your marriage is follow the example of Jesus Christ. When things get difficult at home, and they will, you must continue to follow the example of Jesus Christ and remain entrusting yourself into the hands of God. That, didn't, that, that was not a good sentence at all. I just kind of threw all kinds of verbs and subjects in there and poof, and see if anything happened. It didn't happen. You, you need to continue to trust that God will reward you for your obedience to him, even when it's difficult obedience. Follow the example of Jesus. And then he says, this is how you're supposed to do that. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, there's two ideas as to what that actually is speaking about. That word understanding means knowledge, to know or to learn by experience. And the the two ideas behind that can be, first of all, this one, understanding what God's purpose and plan for you in marriage is. And so, as husbands, what God's purpose and plan in marriage is for us is this. Make it your practice and your priority to love your wife as Christ loved the church. How? And when you think about how Jesus Christ loved the church, we go back to what we began with. Humility. Jesus himself set aside heaven, making himself of no reputation, and stepped down from heaven for you. What a loving husband will do is deny himself of his rights so that he can serve his wife. Selflessness. What Jesus did by sacrificing himself for you is make you holy through his actions. A loving husband will be focused on whatever he can do to meet the needs of his wife. Pursuit. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus pursued you. A loving husband will continuously compete for his wife's companionship and heart. Sacrifice. Just as Jesus took your place on the cross, a loving husband will yield all comfort and convenience for his wife's best. And all of that must happen independent of her character or her behavior. All of that must happen regardless of how she responds to you. 
Just as Jesus Christ died while we were sinners and most undeserving, a loving husband will serve, love, care for, and honor his wife regardless of the response that he gets. That's God's call to you as a husband. It's kind of heavy, isn't it? I mean, the masks aren't the only thing making you quiet right now. There's like a, oh. Um, last week at the end, I don't know, it might have been one of you. Somebody said to me, they're like, okay, I timed it. You spoke to wives for 31 minutes. I expect 31 minutes on men. Well, actually, if you do the math, wives had six verses. Men only have one. So I don't know. That means I should be able to speak on four minutes and be done. Um, somebody else made the joke, of course. <laughs> Husbands can only handle one verse. Um, and actually, I would agree, because based on what we just talked about right there, the example of Jesus Christ in, in, in humility and in selflessness and in pursuit and in sacrifice and in loving in spite of the response, I have enough homework right there. And yet, that's not even the beginning. Because the second idea that can be found in the living in an understanding way with your wife is actually understanding your wife. See, all wives are different. All wives are different. I don't know about, I'm going to ask the wives. Okay, ladies, I'm going to ask you. I am not asking husbands because I don't want them to fall on their face in front of everybody. So wives, how many of you are like, you know, when it comes to my birthday, Christmas, the ideal gift is something from Home Depot. Ladies? Okay. There, I don't see any hands. My wife was jumping up and down on her chair for a service. Like, me, 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 me. And I know that every wife is different. Now, I want to protect you. I love you. Um, about three years ago, I was preaching on this verse for something or referring to it. And I was like, this is a trap, so nobody fall for it. And then somebody went in both feet. So I'm telling you again, this is a trap. Don't amen this. <laughs> I can't be any more clear. The question always comes when it comes uh, when it's about um, your wives or women. It's like, well, Frank, I mean, come on, women. Am I right? Who can understand the mind of your wife? And three or four years ago, somebody back in that area was like, "Amen." I'm like, no, that's not good because that's actually a confession of guilt. Because what Peter has called us to is, no matter how difficult it might be, you must understand your wife. You must live with her in knowledge, understanding who she is, what makes her tick, what are her fears, what are her dreams, what are those things inside of her. You must understand them. Husbands, that is your priority. That is your whole life commitment to understanding and knowing your wife. So men, sit down with your wife and talk. I saw a surprising survey this week that said, on average... The average couple in America spends 37 minutes a week talking about anything other than kids, schedule, and finances. 37 minutes a week. I, I would bet that most of us spent a few more minutes than that when we were trying to put on our good face and woo her. And then we're like, well, I don't understand my wife. Of course you don't. You're not trying it takes time. It takes communication. So, so what are your wife's greatest joys in life? What are her greatest fears? What, what are your wife's dreams? And I mean the 
crazy, yeah, that's never going to happen dream, and the attainable ones. What, what are your wife's dreams? What's her, this is dumb, what's her favorite candy? Favorite flower, favorite restaurant. What, what is, in your wife's opinion, what would be the greatest day possible? What would that look like? How would she say you can best encourage her during the day? What would she say about how she would feel most secure and protected by you? Now, some of us are sitting here uh, and we're thinking through that list. We're like, I know those answers. Okay, two things. First, bad news, those answers change over time. So you better make sure you really know the answers. And secondly, Peter doesn't call us to just know the answers. Peter doesn't tell us just to to learn the facts so we can pass a test. Peter says you are supposed to live with your wife according to that knowledge. That means a godly husband is one whose life is wrapped up in not only knowing his wife's needs, vulnerabilities, and insecurities, but then sacrificing in order to care for her and protect her in those. That knowledge must turn into action. Men, God has called you to care for your wife according to that knowledge, as you would if she was a weaker partner. Um, That's a favorite phrase out of this verse this week. He says, as with a weaker partner, a weaker vessel. What in the world does that mean? Well, we had staff meeting this week and staff devotions, and we worked through this passage, and we had lots of suggestions of what it could mean. And uh, that's our new nickname for everybody in the office. We just call each other the weaker vessel, so that's good. Um, What what does it mean? Let me kind of do the same thing I did from last week when I talked about submission. Let me start with this. What it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is that women are a second-class level of sex. So, so men are here and, and women are here. And so men, husbands, you need to treat her as the weaker vessel because she is second class. No, 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 no. That is not what te- the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches what I believe very clearly is something called complementarianism. I'm going to give you a quick crash course on complementarianism. But the first thing you need to understand about complementarianism is how to spell it. <laughs> Which I have written down so I can't possibly screw it up. <laughs> but understand, it is not... Complimentarianism, which is C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-N-T-A-R-I-N-I-S-M. It's not that. It's not spelled with an I, to compliment with an I. If, if it was, that would mean to highlight, to flatter, to add praise to. And that would give the idea that a woman was created merely to, as something that makes a man praiseworthy. She compliments it, even that's not how you say it, but compliments him and makes him look so wonderful. Well, that would lead to the idea that women are a second-class level of sex. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches complementarianism with an E. C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T-I-R-I-A-N-M-N-O-P-Q-R-S. Um, I was doing good, then I lost my place in my notes. <laughs> but it's complementarianism. That's the important thing. To complement means something that completes or makes perfect, either of two parts or things that are needed to complete the whole. The understanding of complementarianism with an E is the understanding of completeness. The Bible teaches that women are equal in dignity, value, and worth, and that though both sexes, male and female, bear God's image fully on their own, they each do so in their unique and distinct ways. 
So, so male and female reflect truths about God that aren't reflected by male alone or female alone. And so if you were to come in and compartmentalize the sexes, if you were to take men over here and women over here, then what you would have is two groups of incomplete people. And God was very specific and clear in Genesis chapter 2 that that was not good, right? He creates and says, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's very good, ooh, that's good, that is not good. Adam's alone. And so he says, I will make for him a helper. We'll get to that in a moment. And so what God then does is he begins to bring in front of Adam all of the animals. And Adam begins to name the animals. And this is in, in light of the idea that God is trying to bring a helper to Adam. And so as the animal crosses in front of Adam, I don't know if it crossed in front of him or how it worked, but as he crossed in front of him, Adam would name them. Like, okay, camel, buffalo, chipmunk. I don't, I don't know. I mean, he's just going through all of them, right? But when he gets through all of them, as both he and God come to the conclusion that as Adam is naming the animals, what he is identifying them as is different. He names them and they just keep moving along and they don't fulfill him. They don't complete him. They don't uh, help him because they're different. And there's no helper found for Adam. So what does God do? God knocks Adam out takes a rib from his side, and forms woman, forms Eve. And as Adam comes to out of his groggy state, and he looks, and there standing before him is Eve, this woman. And, and, and the Hebrew language is, is, can be somewhat poetic at times. This is one of those moments. It's very poetic. The Hebrew word for man actually sounds like man. It's ish. That's, that's your word for man, ish. But when Adam woke up and he looked and he saw a woman, the Hebrew word for woman is what he looked at and saw, and you remember his words, his words were, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. So instead of looking at her like he did with all the animals, different, 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 he woke up and went, Isha, same. She's, she's made from me. She is part of me. She's who I am. A helper has been found. Do not hear that helper has been found and hear that as an inferior term. It's easy to do that. But what you need to understand is the word helper there is the Hebrew word ezer. Ezer is a word that was most commonly used of God as he helped Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. God came alongside Israel, protected them, helped them. That's where we get the word, not Scrooge, but the, 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 the sign of victory. Hither by thy help I've come, Ebenezer. The idea is God came alongside and helped. So would you say God is inferior to Israel? No. The only reason Israel survived is because of God's help, God's assistance. And the same goes for man. The helper, the easer, is woman. So they're not a second-class level of sex. They're not inferior. What it is saying the most obvious meaning that you can take from this is that, that women generally, and this is a huge generalization because I know some of you women could whip me, but it's generally saying that women are the weaker in physical strength. But what Peter here is saying, he's not saying, okay, boys, that's right, you're supposed to go and be like, baby, give me the pickle jar, I'll open it for you. You're the weaker vessel. That's not what Peter's saying. Peter is saying in his time way more than that. Because in his culture, the women with few exceptions, uh, were 
disadvantaged and vulnerable economically, politically, and legally. They had less power, they had fewer rights than men had. What Peter wants is for the husbands to look at their wives in that situation and to be considerate of the more vulnerable places their wives would find themselves in. Uh, I think he does that because a lot of times people in positions of advantage and privilege don't, uh, uh, aren't aware of the disadvantages of people who are in weaker positions because it's only, this is what I'm accustomed to, this is what I've had all my life, I can't understand anybody else having anything different. And Peter says, no, I want you to take your advantages, your privileges, your power, and I want you to look at her and see her disadvantages, her vulnerability, and I want you to take your advantages and serve her well. Do not use them for yourself. Serve her well. So husbands, that's how you're supposed to think about your wives. A person with dignity and value who is to be cherished, protected, and defended by you. That The point of this text isn't how she is weaker. The point of this text is because you know her, you live with her in knowledge, you, you can care for her according to that knowledge because you know her insecurities, you know her weaknesses, so you can come alongside her and serve her, care for her, and protect her as if she was the weaker vessel. It doesn't matter if your wife is weak or stronger than you. Your responsibility remains the same. You still must care for her as if she is weaker. That was a safe one to say amen to. So what are we supposed to do? We care for her. We we protect her. We we make sure that she knows she is cared for. That's why I got ripped apart. This was six years ago. I got shredded for opening a grocery store door for a woman. She, she just came out of her shoes at me. I'm strong enough. I can open my own door. I'm like, I, I know. Help yourself. Um, but as Stephanie and I were talking about it afterwards, and I asked her, I was like, is that, is that really offensive to you? And she's like, yeah, I can open my own door, but it's nice to know that you would want to open it for me. And that's the picture Peter's going. Your wife certainly can open her own door. She can certainly pull out her own chair. She can certainly do all of these different things. But men... If you're going to love her as Christ loved the church, you're going to care for her. You're also going to show her honor. Show her honor. He says it's, this is the, to treat her as if she has great value, great worth. The, the, the words for showing her honor are words that are often used for assigning a price to something. This is it's antique roadshow. You know, the, the show, they come in, they're like, and the guy always has has a little pencil or something that he's pointing to. He's like, and if you look here and here and here and here, there's a little signature over here, and this is worth $40 trillion. Ah. All of our stuff would be like, that should just be thrown away. Um, <laughs> but if you assign that value to it, you carry it differently, right? I mean, if I walk in thinking, man, this thing's going to be like a nickel. So, hey, man, how much is that worth? And he takes out his little pencil. He's like, $10,000. I am not walking out like this anymore. I'm like... He says, that's how you should show honor to your wife. You esteem her because you have assigned value to her. It's also used for how you treat people based on their position or relationships. And let me explain that with an illustration. The picture is this. A couple of months ago, my son got married. We went to the wedding. Uh, My wife and I have done a number of things leading up to it. But at the wedding, we actually gave them a gift. I promise you, no matter how much I like your children, the gift that I gave to my son and his bride is going to be much different than the gift I give to your children at their wedding. 
You would expect none less, right? Because of the level of relationship that I have. It's because of the understanding of how much I care for him. I love him. I love them. And I'm going to show them a greater level of honor because the greatest relationship is there. And so, so what, what Peter says here, he says, listen, I want you to show them honor because of the relationship husbands have with wives. Is it because of the relationship we have with each other? No. He says, I want you to show them honor because the greatest relationship in her life isn't with you. She's God's daughter. Show them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life. Your responsibility, your job, your duty as a husband is to show her honor because before she was your wife, she was his kid. You treat your wife as a princess of the kingdom of heaven because she is. You treat her as a sister in Jesus Christ, as an equal partner in God's eyes, because she is. Um, This will mean nothing to any of you, and my wife's not here in the service, so I can say this um, without embarrassing myself. It's not her. There there was something that happened last week, and we did the interview, um, which was hilarious. We were going to do another interview this week, and she was going to stay off screen, and we were going to use the Charlie Brown voice for her voice, but I still couldn't talk her into it. Um, she, she, she made a comment at the end, or in, in somewhere in there, about sharing with me her opinion as wife to husband and, and considering that important because I was her. And honestly, when I was listening to her speak in that moment, I was waiting for her to say husband. But what she said was, I was her brother in Christ. That's, that's a profound relationship. Men, as you look at your wives, they're your sister in Christ, they are the daughter of the Most High God. And when Peter said this to the people of his day, I would imagine the Christian husbands would have been astonished that they were being called to show honor to their wives. But even more than that, that the watching world, the unbelievers around them, as they witnessed a Christian man honoring his wife, treating her with respect instead of treating her as property, that that would have been mind-blowing to them. Because in that time, it wasn't unusual for them to, to, to demean women. They would talk down about women. They would call them weaker vessels. They would call them, uh, actually, and when it came to wives in particular, wives were just the women that the men kept in their lives to bear them legitimate children. Here, Peter's turning that upside down. And, and, and so that would have, would have completely been countercultural. And, and, and while our culture is very different, it's still not unusual to hear men refer to their wives in demeaning terms. Men, that can not be. And, and I, don't, I don't know the specific ones. There, there's the, the oldie, but I say goodie, but that's not true. The, the old lady, the, the ball and chain. I had a friend who used to refer to his wife as she who must be obeyed. It's funny, but it's still mean and it's still inappropriate. It's still funny, but it's still inappropriate. Um, and, and the reality is it doesn't matter what company you keep. It doesn't matter what relationship. It doesn't matter what group you are in. Every word you speak about your wife that comes out of your mouth should be one of honor and respect. If you don't honor her as God's daughter. Your relationship with God himself is messed up. How you treat his daughter 
will affect your relationship with God. That's how he ends the verse. Honor her as a co-heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. There is a a spiritual consequence that is assigned to the way husbands treat their wives. That word hindered is the word that when a military would see the the attacking army coming at them and they'd be rolling at them with chariots, what the, the, the military and defense would do is go out and they would dig ditches in the road so the chariots wouldn't be able to make it through them. They would have to circumnavigate and kind of go all the way around. Or they would throw huge obstacles in their way so they couldn't continue to advance. That's what the word hindered means. It means this military here that's on the defense is sabotaging the road so they can't be attacked, so that the, the advancing armies couldn't come. It's sabotaging the road. By not loving living in knowledge of your role as a husband, living in knowledge of your wife and who she is, by not caring for her, by not honoring her, what you are doing is sabotaging your relationship with the Father. A husband's spiritual health depends significantly on the way he treats his wife. So, Are you daily fulfilling your commitment to knowing your bride well? Responding to her sensitively? Sacrificing your preferences? Changing your priorities? All because you want to show honor to the woman God calls his child to the woman that God has allowed you to call your wife. This is not easy. It takes work. So get to work. Father, thank you that you have called us to something that is beyond ourselves. So we have to trust in you. Thank you for the marriages here at Uniontown and the the men and women who are currently living in obedience to you, seeking to make you happy, seeking to satisfy your call in their life to, to be the wife, to be the husband that you expect them to be. Thank you. Thank you that you promise us that we can trust you. Thank you that as we entrust ourselves into your faithful care, we can know that the consequences are going to be positive. Because you will not make a promise that you will not keep. Father, thank you that through this, we can draw close to you, clinging to you continuously, day in and day out, trusting that you are going to fulfill your word, even though it's difficult. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, the common bond it gives us. Lord, I pray we'd see him more clearly that we'd love him more deeply, that we'd hold on to him with all our strength as we seek to live out what you've called us to in our marriage. It's in Christ's precious and wonderful name I pray.